0: I made an oopsie in the last episode. Holy Toledo. Hey, you know me. I make tons of oopsies. Since you presumably were raised in or otherwise inhabit a particular region of the world, you've no doubt had my fingernails grated against your chalkboard with one or another or a dozen other mispronunciations, especially if your particular region of the world is France or the Pittsburgh greater metropolitan area. I expect to get things wrong because, like, that's the thesis of the show, right? But generally speaking, my mistakes have been minor ones. At least as far as I know. If you think I flubbed something major, (laughs) do tell me. That's what Twitter was made for, after all. The error in Holy Toledo, however, deserves a correction. Not just because I was so very and definitively wrong, but because I'm afraid it was a very catchy error. The kind of thing that people might get in their heads... And then leave their mouths in casual conversation and spread around. So I hope you're still listening, and I hope that this correction sticks harder than the blunder does. I said at some length that Thomas Jefferson introduced in his land ordinance of 1784 a clause barring slavery in all Northwest states after 1800, and that when it failed, he was both angry and despondent. Despondry, you could say, although I wouldn't recommend it. All of that so far is correct. He regretted, loudly and repeatedly, that the clause was one vote short of being approved. That was also correct. But then I dropped the bombshell that Jefferson himself had been one of the opposing votes. And that is the part I got wrong. On two levels, no less. It was an honest mistake. Of all the hypocrites to ever hypocrite on slavery, Jefferson stands tallest, so don't mistake this as being proof that he's gotten a bad rap. Frankly, if you ask me, he's gotten an unfairly good rap. Not only was he a slave owner, but one of the people he enslaved was Sally Hemings, his wife's half-sister. In all likelihood, it's not a sure fact, but pretty darn likely, Jefferson fathered some number of Hemings' children, perhaps all six of them. At the same time, Jefferson decried the very peculiar institution that he benefited from and furthered. Still, he did vote for the anti-slavery clause in his 1784 ordinance. I mucked it up because I misunderstood how the vote was taken. When Jefferson's ordinance was introduced into the Congress of the Confederation, two delegates moved to strike the clause barring slavery after 1800. So a vote was held. But votes worked differently in the confederation that preceded the current U.S. Congress. Each state had one vote, and that vote was determined by a sort of sub-vote taken by the state's delegation. So, to pass, Jefferson's clause needed the votes of seven of the 13 states, which meant it needed the majority of the members of those seven states to agree to support it. It was tougher even than that, though, because only 10 states were present at the Congress for the vote. There were seven northern states present, all of whom voted for the clause, which would have been the ballgame, except that during this Congress, there was a bad bug going around which sickened a number of members. New Jersey had so many men out that they lacked a quorum, and so they didn't get a vote. Jefferson needed one of the southern states to cross over. He didn't get it. South Carolina and Maryland voted against, North Carolina deadlocked, which left Jefferson's home state of Virginia. According to Jefferson, Virginia was one vote short, but his friend and future president, James Monroe, was also sick in bed. Monroe left no record of his intended vote, but Jefferson believed he would have sided against slavery and denied its propagation through the new union. I mistook Virginia's vote for being Jefferson's, but Jefferson's delegation turned against him. The final vote, in sheer numbers, counted 16 opposing slavery against only 7 in favor. Yet that was not enough. Six states versus three was still one short. Thomas Jefferson, that owner and probable rapist of slaves, was, what was the word? Dyspongri. When Monroe offered his revision the next year in the Land Ordinance of 1785, Jefferson again attempted to attach his anti-slavery language to it, but he failed to get support. The despondency only grew, and grew, and grew. On April 20th, 1826, a gristmill owner out of Ohio named James Heaton wrote to the by-then aged Jefferson, asking, Permit a plain man, a native of Virginia, an admirer of your character, who feels an interest in your fame, and who always has eagerly laid hold of everything that he thought ever escaped your pen, as political and moral perfection, I say, Permit such a man to occupy a few minutes of your precious and remaining time. It has for many years been conjectured that you would favor the world at some point with a political treatise, having for one object the abolition of slavery. If heaven, in mercy to the blacks, and safety to the whites, and unfading honor to your already great name and fame, should so move you to leave but one single page to that effect, many of your devoted friends and political disciples firmly believe it would have a more certain, calm, permanent, and irresistible effect than any and of all things said and written thereon since the existence of the American government. I am well aware that to ask you to write me your opinion in detail on that subject would be improper, and for me to trouble you with a tedious letter would be impertinent. But my zeal on the subject, together with a long-confirmed opinion of the goodness of your heart and rectitude of your head, has emboldened me to pray of you to give me two lines, expressive of the probability of your leaving for the world, your thoughts on that subject. Jefferson responded on May twentieth, 1826. It was one of the last things he wrote just 45 days before his death on July 4th. In it, he is still remembering the time he came within one vote of putting what he thought could be a gradual but permanent end to slavery. Dear Sir, he wrote, the subject of your letter of April 20th is one on which I do not permit myself to express an opinion, but when time, place, and occasion may give it some favorable effect. A good cause is often ignored more by ill-timed efforts of its friends than by the arguments of its enemies. Persuasion, perseverance, and patience are the best advocates on questions depending on the will of others. The revolution in public opinion which this cause requires is not to be expected in a day, or perhaps in an age, but time which outlives all things will outlive this evil also. My sentiments have been forty years before the public. Had I repeated them forty times, they would have become the more stale and threadbare. Although I shall not live to see them consummated, they will not die with me. But living or dying, they will ever be in my most fervent prayer. This is written for yourself and not for the public, in compliance with your request of two lines of sentiment on the subject. Accept the assurance of my good will and respect. Thomas Jefferson Now, this is a correction— not a benediction. I'm giving it to you not because I think you should like Thomas Jefferson, but because I think it's important that you and I and everyone gets things right when we can. I don't think that that's a thing that can be said with honesty about Thomas Jefferson. Not in practice, at least. Yet there's a higher lesson I think we can take from this knowledge. Something beyond the facts. Something about history. And that is that even Thomas Jefferson who, over the course of his life, enslaved more than 600 people and probably enchained at least one of them in decades of sexual servitude, even he knew it was wrong. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving me your indulgence. And thank you to David Sedley for pointing out the error to me. See you in a week.